Good morning. How is everyone doing? Does anyone even know what a homily is? I missed, what did you all say I missed it? Oh gosh. <laughs> By definition, it's a short sermon. It's a short sermon. So Justice thinks I can do a homily on Christmas Eve. That's what he's saying. We'll, we'll keep it to that. It'll be actually less than an hour. The service. The service. <laughs> All right, Matthew chapter 2. Turn there with me. As you're turning, I'm going to pray. Father, thanks for the privilege of us being able to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ and worship you. Lord, I, I pray for the pulpits across America and across this world that they would preach the truth in its entirety. And as we focus um, in this season uh, on the birth of your son, God, that the truth of the gospel would, would go out uh, unashamedly and boldly not just from the pulpits, but from the members as well, God, and that you would uh, use our church and the churches, God, that are truly yours uh, to spread your word. We thank you, God, for the privilege of being in your presence this morning. Continue uh, to be with us, God. We thank you for your mercy, which is ever new to us, God, and we need it daily. Continue to pour it out upon us, we pray, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Let's read Matthew, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in the dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Christmas today is very momentous in the life of the church. It's a big event, and it goes on for weeks and weeks. I mean, it's technically Advent, the coming to uh, as, Je uh, as Justice mentioned, it's the fourth Sunday in Advent, and it's not technically Christmas in until Christmas. Uh, but what about the early church? Because there's been some debate about Christmas and, and how we got it. 
Here's the thing. The, the gospel writers make way too much about the birth of Jesus for us to just kind of think it's not, it's not a big deal. I mean, think about it just for a moment. Luke spends two chapters, and, and, and those two chapters are some pretty long chapters. But he spends two chapters, but he also brings, really focusing on the birth of Christ, what does he bring into it? He brings in uh, the birth of John the Baptist, and he has the story about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Then we have the story where Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. So we're getting all this, but what is, what is it kind of encouched in? It's really kind of focused in this part of Luke's gospel on Jesus' birth. The same thing when you think about Matthew. Matthew spends two chapters as well. And what is he, how does he start his gospel? With the genealogy. Well, what do genealogies have? Well, I mean, when you think genealogies, I mean, this begat this, begat this, begat, you're thinking births. And then he gets to the birth of Jesus. So, you know, if it was just like a sentence or two from the gospel writers, we might want to pause and wonder why we've made such a big deal of it today. Uh, But the gospel writers make a big deal of it. That's why we make a big deal of it. This was huge in their eyes, so it makes sense for it to still be huge today. And, And in fact, when you think about it even more, like whenever angels are involved important things are going on. And there's like angels all over the place when it comes to the birth of Jesus. You got the angel with Zechariah saying that his wife, who's been barren, is going to have a son. You got an angel appearing to Joseph, an angel appearing to, to Mary. I mean, there's just... And then, then they're getting dreams. All this stuff is going on. And when Jesus is born, what happens? There's angels. Right? Loud, bright, beautiful, like, birthday party right outside Bethlehem announcing Jesus' birth. So, the point is this. This momentous um, occasion, he makes it clear to wise men about a thousand miles away. Okay? That's how momentous this occasion was. And so momentous that they actually had to get up, travel a thousand miles, and see what's going on. The Old Testament as well has a number of prophecies regarding the coming Messiah's birth. Isaiah talks about it, like born of a virgin. I mean, that alone right there is like something, something different is going on. That should make us pause. We got the passage that we just read where Matthew quotes Micah, born in Bethlehem. We get passages where it says he's going to be called a Nazarene. We get the passage where he's called out of Egypt. All of this focusing around the early life of Christ. So the idea of having an annual commemoration or remembrance, it makes sense. And the fact that the church started this practice early should come as no surprise to us. Now, depending on how much reading you've done outside of the Bible regarding Christmas and different things, you've potentially actually heard people kind of knock Christmas and, oh, it's really just like a a pagan holiday that the Christians just kind of like copycatted. What is true that the Romans had a seven-day festival in winter called the Saturnalia, focused on the god Saturn. It started around December 17th, and it was basically like a week long with all sorts of revelry and immorality. The Roman emperor marked the end of the winter solstice by having a feast to the soul 
Invictus, the unconquered sun. Why was that? Well, because December 21st, summer solstice, what happens? Those, those days that were short start getting longer again, right? The sun's not conquered, the S-U-N. And so you might have heard the story goes, Christians wanted to make Christianity more you know, palatable to the Romans and more popular with the people, so they put the celebration of their Savior on December 25th. So it kind of started as a copycat of a pagan holiday. It's actually not true. Um, in fact, liberal and conservative historians, uh, liberal conservative theologians, they actually all acknowledge that is not an accurate account. You've probably heard that for many years. It's not an accurate account. Um, and I'm really not going to focus on that today. I do want to throw it out there. Um, because here's the thing. The early Christians, they like wanted nothing to do with pagan practices. Nothing at all. Even Paul is, is combating that in 1 Corinthians 8, right, with the meat sacrifice to They're concerned about, about meat sacrifice to idols and what might that do to their own conscience, but also to the conscience and, and uh, witnesses of other people. I mean, that's how concerned they were about making sure they didn't defile themselves, not just physically, but like spiritually. So are we to really think that, that these early Christians would, oh yeah, let's just take this pagan holiday and adopt it and just make it our own and, and hopefully we'll rent, win some converts that way. Eh, no, not true. They wouldn't have done that. And, and the evidence actually supports the exact opposite, that there's very good evidence that likely the Romans copycatted the Christians. Think about that. That's actually going to be next year's Christmas sermon series, so that was really just a little preview. <clears throat> You've got to stick around, and you'll get that much more information next year. But the Reformers, when it comes to the Protestant tradition, the Reformers wanted a more modest approach to the church calendar. By the time you get to the kind of the infancy of the Reformation, you know, 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, like the church calendar was like packed with all sorts of crazy things for this saint and that saint and all sorts of things. So the reformers decided to keep five. All anchored to events in Christ's life. Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. Those five. This meant that the, the feast of St. Theodore's ankle bone would not be a part of the Protestant tradition. Sorry, St. Theodore. But why anchor it to Jesus? Because they wanted to focus on him and him alone, right? Sola, what is it? Sola what? Sola Christus. Sola Christus. Yes, Sola Fide and Sola Scriptura, but Sola Christus, Christ alone. It was the heartbeat of the Reformation. It's about Jesus. So let's make sure we focus on him. So here comes Jesus into the world as an infant. You ever thought about why he came into the world? I'm sure you have if you're a believer, right? Jesus came into the world like primarily not to show the way. I mean, a prophet could show the way, and the prophets did show the way. And he came into the world primarily not to be an example. He was an example. But there was many good examples in the Bible of men and women that followed after God faithfully. 
No, I mean, he was the way. He was not a way, but he was the way. So he wasn't showing a way. He was the way. But Jesus came into the world primarily to lay his life down. Listen to me, to lay his life down as a propitiatory sacrifice. What does that mean? He came to lay down his life and take what? Your sins upon him, bear that burden, and then bear the punishment of God for your sins. Only one person could do that. The very Son of God. He could obey the Father perfectly. Have you guys obeyed the Father perfectly? Nope. He could lay down his life willingly. And he perfectly was obedient throughout his entire life. Okay? His entire life. His entire life. 30 some odd years. He was perfectly obedient and all things required of him. Followed the law literally to the letter. And he was perfectly obedient to willingly lay down his life on the cross. He wasn't forced there. No, he covenanted with the Father to go there willingly. This he did, one, for the Father, and two, for you. Now, did the wise men know all this? No, not in this detail at all. But they wanted to know about this king of the Jews. Whatever it looked like, these wise men wanted to seek out this king. They wanted to see him in the flesh, as we just sang earlier, veiled in the flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. Now, how long did they stay in Bethlehem? We don't know. What did they do during their stay? We don't know. That's not the focus, right? What's the focus? It's Jesus. We might like to know that information, and someday we'll be able to find that out. But what we do know is they were motivated to travel around a thousand miles to see this king of the Jews. And they knew he was king. Look back in Matthew, verse 2. They arrive, and what's their first question? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They knew he was a king. They knew he was a king of the Jews. And they knew there was something special about him because they wanted to worship him. We know they trusted God more than man because they didn't report to Herod like they were told to. What does Herod tell them? Verse 8. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Did they listen? No. They feared God more than man. They trusted God more than man. And as we're going to see uh, in a moment about Herod, it, it was no small thing to slight King Herod. He was more than willing to take care of business if he was not happy with you. So they wanted to see this king, they wanted to meet this king, and they wanted to know this king. Friends, this needs to be us. This needs to be us. Think of the things they were willing to do to meet Jesus. Then ask yourself, what am I willing to do to know Jesus? But then contrast their approach with King Herod. We even saw a little glimpse of it when, when Herod's like, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. 
Like, I mean, we, we know the end of the story. Like, really, Herod, come on. <clears throat> what do we know about King Herod? Most of it comes from Josephus, who was a Jewish historian at the time. King Herod was probably in the middle, towards the end of his, of his great dynasty that he was starting, and he wanted to pass it down to, to his, his progeny. But it really started with his dad. King Herod was about power and prestige. They think he had roughly 2,000 bodyguards. That's a lot. And King Herod would make our politicians proud today. He would fit right in. He was calculating, shrewd, and willing to make huge sacrifices for his own political gain. In fact, at one point early in his career, he divorced his wife and sent her away and his own son away into exile merely to gain political influence and power. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the time, they weren't a big fan of King Herod's, in part because he was not Jewish by blood. He was an Edomite. And you, can, you, know, you might know the story of the Edomites, but he was an Edomite. He was a practicing Jew, so he went through the, the routine and the motions, but that was not what ran through his blood. So they weren't too fond of that. His dad was a man of influence who used his wealth and prestige to benefit his own family. Uh, Pompey invades uh, Jerusalem in 63 B.C. His dad, trying to be wise about this situation, actually supports the campaign. What ends up happening? Well, Rome favors his dad because of this. A few years later, Herod, relatively young at the time, ends up meeting Mark Antony, who is well known in history. And they don't just know each other, they actually become lifelong friends. And if you know your Roman history, Antony went to war against Octavian, and Herod supported Antony. Amazingly enough, it actually didn't cost him in the end that support. Julius Caesar was a fan of Herod's lineage and bestowed upon him Roman citizenship about 20 years into his family's reign. Of course, you get the citizenship and it passes down to your progeny, right? So it's a huge thing. In about 40 B.C., civil war breaks out. The Parthians invade Palestine. Herod actually flees to Rome, kind of like for safety and security. But it ends up to his benefit because that's when they bestow upon him basically the title of king and send him back with a huge army to take care of business in the area of Palestine. He was extremely protective of his throne as well as extremely paranoid and jealous. He murdered another wife of his, as well as his own two sons, his brother-in-law, his grandfather-in-law, his mother-in-law. He was willing to go to extremes to protect what he thought was his. That's why when we read in verse 3, look back there, when King Herod heard this, what did he hear? The question of the wise men. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and we've come to worship him. When he hears this, it says what? He's troubled. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> this paranoid, extremely jealous, willing to do whatever, is going to be greatly paranoid 
and troubled if his throne is being threatened by a new king of the Jews. Especially since Herod knew and his blood did not run any Jewish blood. So everything he's done to build his empire within the Roman Empire is at risk. So he's not about to let a little baby ruin his kingdom or his power or his reign. That's why if you keep reading the story, you know, the, the wise men, they don't, they don't tell Herod. Then what happens? Herod gets really mad, and he, I mean, he slaughters all the infant baby, you know, boys. Well, I mean, it kind of makes sense. That, that is totally in line with Herod to take crazy drastic action like that. I'm not taking any chances. I'm just going to wipe out the whole village of baby boys. Now, think about for a second the contrast between the wise men and King Herod. And even if you think for a moment, like the, the knowledge and the information the wise men had compared to King Herod, like it was, it was pretty sparse. We don't know exactly what they had, but they had enough to get them, get them uh, traveling, and they had a star. But King Herod at his disposal had the chief priests, the scribes, the Jewish scriptures in their entirety. Yet, yet who would we rather align with, the wise men or Herod? So even with their limited knowledge, they sought out the king of the Jews. And Herod, with all his great information at his disposal, wanted to kill the king of the Jews. Friends, we got two approaches to Jesus here, and, and I want us to ask a question here. Because if we're not careful, we can sometimes end up a lot more like Herod than we can the wise men. And we can sometimes end up searching out things for our own benefit, making decisions that, that benefit us, and that we're looking out for ourselves instead of the benefit of others. We, we end up walking more in the flesh than in the Spirit. Each one of us, if we're honest, has a little, king, a little bit of King Herod in our hearts. Herod was more concerned about himself than others, that is clear. But we can be too. And I think we've even seen a lot of this the last nine months. People more concerned about themselves than about others. And there's been dis division, disunity, a lack of Christ's love everywhere, even in the church. Friends, the king of the Jews born 2,000 years ago was given to us you and me, like for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Yes, 2,000 years ago for such a time as that, but also for us, such a time as this. The wise men had hope in this future king. We need to have hope as well in this future king. I mean, if that's the case, if he really is the king of the Jews, which he is, then our heart should be set on knowing this king. Our heart should be set on seeking him. You know, Hindus, they don't actually have a founder for Hinduism if you ever search it out. 
their, their religion doesn't, doesn't depend on a founder. Buddhists, you don't need to know Buddha. You just got to follow what he taught, follow his, his path. Same with Muslims. You know, when it comes to Islam, it's not about knowing God, it's really just about obeying him. But think about Christianity. Christians have to know Jesus. Listen to this verse, John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Right here, Jesus is defining for us eternal life. Listen to it again. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know, if you know the Son, if you really know the Son, it's transformative. It transforms you. And you cannot help but be a different person. People talk about, like, Mike, when did you get saved? I just know sometime back in 1995, between February 9th and, and February 14th, like God changed my life. I can't pin the date. I don't even remember specifically praying a prayer. Praying some prayer doesn't save you. It's about your trust in the finished work of Christ. And I know at some point in that week, I trusted Christ. I hadn't done it before. I thought I had, but I hadn't done it. Sometimes in that, those few days, I had trusted Christ. And I know, looking back, a change had occurred. It was obvious to me. It was obvious to my family. It was obvious to my friends. I hope that people see a change in your lives. That when they look at you, they can see a difference between you and an unbeliever. If not, that's a problem. It's a problem. We want, in one sense, to stick out. We should stick out. As believers, something should be different about us. If we're just blending in, if we're just no different than the unbelievers, if we're just no different than, than carnal Christians, then we need to reevaluate where, where we're at. We need to ask ourselves, where's our heart at? Our heart should be to know Jesus. Christians have to know Jesus. We don't have to travel a thousand miles to know Jesus. You know what you need to do? You need to open your Bibles and start reading. You need to get on your knees and start praying. We should want to know Jesus and know him and know him more and more and more. If you've begun that relationship with him, then grow in it. What distinguishes you apart from the people you go to school with? What distinguishes you apart from the people that you work with, your coworkers, your employees, your employer? If they're not naming the name of Christ, there should be a difference. And it should be clear. Let me encourage us, we don't want to be closet Christians. We don't. We don't. Think of the wise men willing to lay down their life on the line. They slighted Herod. 
Herod, with his 2,000 bodyguards and an army at his disposal, could more than make them pay. What do we have to lose? Like, what do we have to lose? You know, when I, was, uh, when I, got to, I get to church, obviously, early on Sunday mornings, someone uh, texted Andrea and me this morning um, and said, you were on my heart this morning. I just want to let you know, outside, outside, outside of our church, you were on my heart this morning. I just want to let you know that I've been praying for you, uh, that you would know Jesus intimately this morning. I can't explain it, just being obedient. Like that, that's a heart of someone who knows Jesus and wants other people to know Jesus, right? That knows Jesus and, and wants other people to grow in their faith. That's a person who's on their knees praying for people. That's a person who's sensitive to the Spirit's prompting and hears it and obeys. That should be our heart. That should be our heart. That we're walking with the Lord that we will walk in his ways completely and entirely and fully. Wherever he might lead, whatever he might call us to do, even to the point of sacrificing it all for him and his glory. You know, we have a stark contrast here between Herod's actions and the wise men's actions. Let's search our hearts and make sure our heart is steadfastly set on the love of Christ and the goodness of of the Father. Let's pray. Father, we do want to know you more and more and know your Son more and more. And I ask, Lord, wherever there might be slivers of King Herod in our heart, that in your mercy you'd point it out, and your mercy you'd cut it out. Cut it out from our heart, God. Have us repent of it and walk away from it. And give us hearts like the wise men to seek you and to know you. Lord, do a work in each one of us and let us be bright, shining your glory to others. In Jesus' name, amen.